is good to be back with you today, uh, back at First Baptist. My name is Chad Gilbert, and I have the great joy of serving as the senior pastor here at First Baptist. And this morning, we are beginning a new sermon series. So if you are a guest, you are here at the right time. And I want to encourage you to stick with us for a little bit as we walk through a book of the Bible together. One of my convictions as a pastor is that it is good for the people of God to be able to walk through books of the Bible together. Um, it forces pastors, just so you know on my end, it forces me to deal with passages that maybe I might neglect or maybe I just don't give focus to because we all have our favorite passages, you know, like that we like to go to. Some of us prefer the Old Testament, some of us prefer the New, but it's good for us as the people of God to be exposed to the full counsel of God's Word and to move through passages together. That doesn't mean that we'll take the time to look at every verse in the same depth, but it does mean that we're going to move through and try to see the big picture as we walk through a book of the Bible called Philippians. And so I want to invite you to turn there to the book of Philippians. It's in the New Testament. It was written by a man named Paul, and it's one that he wrote likely while he was in jail. And we're going to read about that right now um, in, in this passage, or as we go through this passage, you'll see about him talking about his own imprisonment. An imprisonment that was brought about not because he had done something bad or illegal, but because he was proclaiming Christ, and that was actually causing some some trouble for him and so anyway so he's going through but but what we know earlier in the in the new testament from the book of acts is that god had led him on a journey that took him over to a region that ultimately led him to philippi and just this incredible story of how the church at philippi began is that paul is in jail there we read this over in acts and and the way that it begins is he's in the stocks in the middle of the night and he's there um, he and another guy named silas and they're they're literally singing in the middle of the night in their imprisonment when all of a sudden god rattles the jail and literally there's an earthquake that doesn't collapse the jail, but it throws every door open. And so the Philippian jailer thinking that everybody is left is going to commit suicide. It was kind of an honor thing to do that I fell down on my duty. All the prisoners have escaped. And Paul yells out, don't harm yourself. We're all still here. And he rushes in with the light, and, and then he says to them, what must I do to be saved? And we see the beginnings of the church in Philippi through this incredible act of God's grace, of preserving the life of this one Philippian jailer, and then he and his whole household come to faith, and they're baptized that very night. I mean, all of these things going on. And so we see this beautiful beginning to the church at Philippi, recorded over in the book of Acts. And now we have Paul writing to them. And if you're like me, as I've looked at Philippians before, I've always been kind of taught that the theme of Philippians is joy. Anybody else ever heard that before? And, and it is. There's a major thread that runs through this letter um, that, that it continues with joy. But as I've stepped back and as I've read through Philippians again and again in preparation for this sermon series, there's been another theme that I think kind of comes to the surface that I think actually kind of serves as the ground out of which grows joy. Um, joy is one of those aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. When Paul talks about in Galatians, the fruit of God's Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Um, when Paul talks about these things, joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so we ought to see joy um, in Paul's life. We ought to see joy in the church in Philippi. But I think that there's some ground that that fruit of the Spirit just really comes to maturation in, that really kind of manifests in. And what 
it seems to be in the book of Philippians, and what it ought to be in the life of the church today is this, the ground of humility. Humility. Jim Collins, in a book called Good to Great, which was a bestseller, it's one of these leadership books that a lot of CEOs and leaders run to to kind of learn from Jim Collins, who's just really mastered the art of leadership and of communicating this. He talks about how to go from a good leader to a great leader by identifying what he says are five characteristics of a great leader. But what he talked about is that most leaders get four out of the five that it's four out of the five that make for some really, really good leaders. That, 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 that maybe even some of you in this room would, 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 would find manifestation in your own life of four of those characteristics. But he said it's that fifth characteristic that sets apart the really good from the great. And he said, and that fifth characteristic is the one that is the most elusive. It's the one that's sometimes, in, in, in some ways, the hardest to pin down to say, well, if you'll just do this, then you'll have that characteristics. The other's a little bit more um, prescriptive. You can say, do this, and you'll have this characteristic. But he said that fifth quality is this, humility. From the greatest leaders that, that we know today that have led the greatest turnarounds in organizations and are doing the greatest things is this aspect of humility. And yet it's the one aspect that he really can't even say exactly what it is that cultivates it or what produces it. But can I just tell you, you follow the greatest leader that ever walked the earth and it is his humility more than anything else that is put on display in this book of the Bible. In fact, there's this Christ hymn that it's often called in chapter 2 that we're going to look at and take our time with. Where Paul steps back and just says, consider Christ. Who was, had this equality with God but he didn't use it. Instead he took on the nature of a servant and, and then he became obedient, even obedient to death, death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This beautiful portrait, and then he says, consider Christ so that you, might clothe yourselves with humility and not more think, think more highly of yourself than you ought to. And so humility seems to be the ground that Paul is cultivating. Any gardeners in the room? You, you know that if you're a gardener, you've got you to deal with the soil. A lot of people focus just on the, the fruit or on the vegetables that come, but it's the soil. It's the soil that matters. If you've got a soil that's, that's got toxins in it or a soil that's missing certain minerals or, 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 nu or nutrients that need to be in it, then, then your fruit is going to be anemic. It's going to be small. But if you've got good soil, there's going to be good fruit. So I hope that by the end of this, there is joy in the saints at First Baptist New Orleans. But I hope it's because we have really planted ourselves firmly in the ground of humility. Because that seems to be what Paul is after. And that seems to be the very aspect of Christ that we are called to imitate in this passage. And so I want to invite you to stand today for the reading of God's word. And today we're going to look just at the first 11 verses together. And so I want to read them. But hear the word of the Lord. Hear your father speak to you today from his word. 
Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it's right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart. And you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment. So that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. God, I thank you for your word and I pray that today as we look at it that we will see humility in every turn of the page. In every movement, God, of this passage, may we remember that you are trying to cultivate in us a humility, a humbleness that acknowledges you as God, that you are glorified when we humble ourselves and we orient ourselves to your son. And when we humble ourselves, you fill us with your spirit. And when we have humble leaders leading us and as we humble ourselves in need of your word, God, we thrive in the life that you've given us in Christ. But you oppose the proud. But Lord, let us see that there are two roads before us in this passage today. There's one of humility And there's one of pride, God, that leads to destruction. So, Lord, please lead us in the way everlasting. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What we see in this passage today is a humble invitation. A humble invitation. That's the the sermon title today in a series that I'm just calling Humility. A humble invitation is issued by the Apostle Paul to you and I today as followers of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're here today and you do not identify as a follower of Jesus Christ, I want you to carefully consider the message that you hear today. I want you to consider the the, the life that is described and put on display here and whether that's a life that appeals to you or repulses you. So if you are there, you are welcome in this place. I'm thankful that you're here and at least exploring and hearing these things. But for we who are followers of Jesus Christ... We live in a day when pride in many ways is celebrated. Where where an arrogant leader is the one we pick to lead us. And that pride begins to, to get in like a little yeast into a lump of bread. It works its way through the whole dough. Pride is that great antithesis of what it means to be a humble follower of Jesus Christ. And so here today, we are extended as followers of Jesus Christ, a humble invitation issued, number one, from a man who identified himself as a servant. Notice if you look at some of the letters that Paul has written, a lot of times he'll establish his apostleship early on. He'll say, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. And that's important because what he's communicating in those passages is that he is a messenger from God. In other words, the words that he's saying, the letter that he's written, the words that he's written, they're not just his words, not just his thoughts. They are God's word to his people. 
But notice here, he doesn't lead with his apostleship. He doesn't start off with why you should listen to me. Instead, notice how he begins in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Understand this, there's an invitation extended to you today to self-identify as a servant of Christ Jesus. We live in a day where identity is important. How do you identify? We talk about identity in lots of terms, but on the surface, probably most important to our culture today is how do I identify sexually? What is my sexual orientation? How do I identify in terms of gender? Do I consider myself male, female, neither, both, binary? I mean, where do I find myself in this continuum? When it comes to sexual orientation, who is it that I prefer to be with? Is it men? Is it women? Is it both? Is it neither? You know, like all of these sort of different things to where you see all of these new boxes emerging in lists. When it's, you know, gender and you click the drop down, the list grows on and on. And so we know that in our culture, identity is important. People want to see the box that represents who they are. And then we start thinking about it in other terms of politics. Are you a Republican? Are you a Democrat? Are you neither? Are you independent? Are you a libertarian? And we start checking the boxes. We want to see our specific ethnicity represented Um, when it comes to the ethnicity box. We want to be able to drop down and see exactly our heritage, who we are, because identity is important. We, We start looking at who am I? You know, like, am I, am I just, just a white male? Is that all that I am? Or is there more to my identity? And so we are a culture consumed with wanting to get at and to dig at, who am I? And Scripture is calling out for you and I as followers of Jesus Christ to establish a primary identity marker of who we are that exceeds everything else that we are as being servants of Christ Jesus. If that becomes your primary identity, everything else changes. Everything Nothing will be the same when you lead, when your lead identity is not your sexual orientation. It's not your gender. It's not your skin color. It's not the status, whether you be high income, middle, low income. Those things fall to the wayside when you step forward and step into a firm identity of I am a servant of Christ Jesus. Because if you're a servant of Christ Jesus, your life's goal is serving him. Everything else falls into place. When you go to work, you're a servant of Christ Jesus. When you come home, you're a servant of Christ Jesus. Everything in your life becomes secondary to that primary identity of being a servant of Christ Jesus. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, some of us would say, yeah, check that box. But it is not a box. It's not just one marker of your identity. Yeah, I'm a servant, but I'm also this, I'm also that. Because if it gets lost in the boxes, then we'll end up with an anemic church that I think many of us experience today. A church where other identities seem to be more important And just check your Facebook feed. And so we must be a people who say, I don't want just the box to be checked. Yeah, I serve Jesus. That's one of the things that I do. 
but a step forward and almost like with a tattoo that marks who you are, say, I am a servant of Christ Jesus. You see, there was this physical manifestation when you turn back in the Old Testament and you see this idea of, of servants or slaves. Really, the, the word that we could translate here is a slave of Jesus Christ. But because of chattel slavery, I think that that word loses something for us today as mostly an American audience to where we would think more negative terms when we think about slavery. But there was this idea of an indenturedness, of, of, a, of a servanthood that went with being a follower of Jesus Christ, that it was no longer my will that would take place, but God's will. But in the Old Testament, we see this, this moment where that if you were a servant, and again, it's different than chattel slavery, but if we, if we look at it, there was a moment where a person could make a decision about, I want to stay in this household as a servant. Where literally you would have to go and, and drive, your, drive an, a, 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 basically a nail through your ear into the doorpost of that home. And you say, man, that's, that's some weird stuff. That's, that's, you know, in the Old Testament. But it was going to be this physical marker where you're identifying yourself with this household. I mean, just like we see, you know, write it on the, the, the doorpost so that as you go in and out, we see the blood of the lamb put on the doorpost. You're identifying so deeply with this household that you're literally nailing yourself to it that this is going to be my household. And then there would be that physical reminder, the hole in your ear, essentially a piercing. It would say, I belong to this. There ought to be a physical manifestation for you and I as followers of Jesus Christ. And what is it? Are we supposed to get tatted up? Are we supposed to get piercings? Or are we supposed to cloak ourselves in humility? You see, humility is a visible manifestation. You know it. You know when you're around an arrogant person. You know it. If you don't know it, you might be the arrogant person. <laughs> Humility is a manifestation of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so we don't just have it just as one piece of our identity. It is what we wear constantly as his followers. You see, when I was working as a camp counselor at a camp called Sky Ranch, I was assigned to the six to eight-year-old boys. So we would have about 20 campers every week. And I, along with three other counselors, were responsible for them. 24 hours a day for six days a week. Longest summer of my life, okay? And every day, we had to take them to mealtime, and they would have these big, I mean, like, they were like the big gulps cups, like 64 ounce. I mean, had to have been. They would fill them to the brim, the kitchen crew, with water and ice. And then the kids would reach out with their little hands, and they couldn't quite get the cup. So what would they end up doing? Spilling the cup every day. They would spill the cup. And so then I'm having to get up for my lunch and run and go get the stuff to clean up all of this. It's just like water's pouring off everywhere every day. And so one day, I'm sitting there at the table. And up to this point, I'm like, man, I've got to clean. I've got to serve. I've got to do this or whatever. And then one day, in one moment, three kids reach for their drink at the same time and like with closed hands, just punch their cups seemingly and all three pour over at the same time. Literally, water is just cascading off the table. And I'm just sitting there. And I'm just like, this is unbelievable. And then in that moment, God did something in me. 
and I just dumped my cup over. Seriously, I just dumped it over. And that was a turning point for me in that summer. You see, I think a lot of times when we think of being a servant, we think of cleaning up other people's messes. Sometimes we just have to join in the messiness. It's okay to be just in the mess. And as I looked at the kids as a fellow cup spiller in that moment, we bonded in that moment because they were all just sitting there like looking at me like, because they all knew like spilling cups really gets off with Chad, you know. And so like they knew in this moment, I think it's like day four out of five, you know, that I'm with them or or whatever. And and they're all looking at me like, man, he's going to blow a gasket right here. And, and then I just pour my cup over. And I entered into the messiness and my summer was transformed. Brothers and sisters, when you and I stop just with this, man, I just gotta clean up everybody's mess. That's what it means to be a servant. I just clean up your mess and instead just become willing to enter into the messiness that is called life with you. And you enter into the messiness that is called life for me. It changes everything. It's what Christian community is all about. And so when you put on this identity of servant of Christ Jesus, you're going to wear that and not just clean up other people's messes. You're going to enter into life with one another in the messiness. And you will be changed. You will be changed. We move through the passage and we see not only an invitation to self-identify as a servant of Christ Jesus, but second, to live a life of gratitude to God. To live a life of gratitude to God. You see, I think humility grows that, you know, like love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, thankfulness, gratitude. Thankfulness comes out of this ground of humility, and we're invited into this life of gratitude. Tons of of writers today have really tapped into this, that it's really important for you, and this is coming from a secular perspective, to spend time on a daily basis giving thanks for something. You can pay a lot of money for a really nice journal that the first question it's going to ask you to fill in every day is three things that you're grateful for. Because research has indicated that when people are grateful, when they have gratitude, that perspective on life changes. They live different lives. Was that something new that they just came up with in 2021 or 2022? What year are we in? 2022? Um, No. It, 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 it echoes back into this passage because look at what Paul does. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you. We are a people who thank God. We see everything as a gift from him. I thank you for giving my family a week away last week to be able to have vacation time as a pastor of a church, to be able to go and be in the mountains of North Georgia and just hiking the trails. But with each one of those moments, I was able to give thanks to God for my children and for time with them. To be able to look at the beauty of of leaves changing and to thank God for the beauty of his creation. Uh, To thank God for the stillness of a moment by a crackling fire. I mean, all of these things, just to be able to give thanks to God. But can I tell you that nothing brings me more to tears in gratitude than when I think about brothers like my brother Ali, my brother Larson, and my, my brother, Abzak, brothers that Noah and I just had the time to spend with in North Africa. When I think about them and I think about their lives and their commitment to Jesus Christ in a context where there's 99.99% Muslim, 
where their families have rejected them. Ali literally got kicked out of the house. He and his wife, who was eight months pregnant at the point, got kicked out because they were followers of Jesus Christ. My heart swells up with gratitude, but it doesn't stop there. This is part of the joy of of being connected with other believers in other contexts. Nate kind of alluded to this, and we were talking about all nations and the joy of being in Thailand and worshiping. But when you gather with brothers and sisters in other contexts, it opens your eyes, and God knits your heart together with them. I love my brother Safiri in the country of Lesotho. I love that man with an affection that is deeper than I can explain. I I am so grateful as I think about Helen, an English teacher that came to Christ while we were doing missions in China. I'm so thankful for these different believers in different places that God has knit my heart together with, with with Brother John, who is my translator in Kenya. Uh, Just the embrace at the end of the trip where I hugged him, I could not stop weeping as we traveled back to our hotel. God had just pierced my heart with a love for this man that went deeper than even, you know, like the the normal way that we think about relationships of just our blood relatives. These were my eternal relatives, my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I rejoice with them. And Paul here says, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you. Why? Because I have you in my heart. And you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness. Listen to what he says, how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. There is an affection for one another that Christ Jesus produces in us. That is, that is an incredible gift from God. To, to have love for one another within the family of God, both locally but also globally is a gift from God that we can give thanks for. But his gratitude is in two directions. He gives, he gives joyful gratitude for God's people. He's so thankful for that work. But then he's also just thankful for God's work, God's people and God's work. Notice what he says, I'm so thankful because I'm confident of this. I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That is good news. It is so good to know that the one who started a work in me and has started a work in you will not stop. He is faithful. He will do it. Paul, again and again, is reminding them, you have a responsibility as followers of Jesus Christ to honor him in every way, to to be holy and pure, to, to really follow him. But don't worry about missing the mark, that you'll somehow lose the inheritance. Don't worry about your salvation in some sense of like, well, I've got to maintain it or I'll lose it. No, he who started a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. That's good news for you and me. Because I don't know about you, but there's more days than there are days that I feel like I've nailed it, hit the bullseye, that I feel like I missed it. 
And I look and I say, how much further do I have to go? What a mess, what a wreck I am. What a roller coaster of emotions I ride. One moment feeling so close to God and then the next just feeling so distant. This, this, this life that I live, I need to know that it's not dependent just on me and on my faithfulness because I missed the mark. And maybe you can, can identify with that. Hear these words one more time. I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in y'all will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's good news, and that is reason to give thanks. See, Paul is inviting them to self-identify as servants of Christ Jesus. He's calling them to live a life of gratitude to God. I mean, he's putting on display, this is how your life should look. You should be giving thanks to one another. In your Bible study groups, pray with joy for one another. Thank God regularly for one another. Be involved in short-term mission trips so that you can do evangelism, bringing the gospel to hard-to-reach places, but also so that you can enter into relationships with brothers and sisters in other contexts because God will change you through those relationships. He will purify you and make you ready for the day of Christ Jesus through those relationships. That is part of the beauty of short-term missions for the church today. What a gift to be able to get on a plane in the span of just one day, be on the other side of the world. Something that just a century ago could have taken months at sea, you could have died. And now our biggest thing is, I can't get the Wi-Fi to work. It's an amazing gift. I encourage you, pursue it. Don't neglect those opportunities, and you will see as Noah, Noah, you and I were talking about this on the trip, just how this passage in particular came to life for him. As he realized the affection that God put in him for the brothers there. It was an incredible gift, and it's something that God wants us to experience more and more as his people. So self-identify as a servant of Christ Jesus, live a life of gratitude to God, and then finally, he then enters into a prayer, and the prayer is this, to be a biblically thriving church. This is his prayer. He, if I had to sum it up, what's that prayer? He wants the church at Philippi to be a biblically thriving church. What would his prayer be for First Baptist New Orleans today? For you to be a biblically thriving church. And I want to show it to you in terms of our core values. Now, I'm going to be honest. I'm not trying to contrive or do gymnastics or whatever, but I want you to see where these core convictions, that as I came in and I shared them with the pastor search committee, I see them over and over and over again in the Scriptures. And so let's walk through it beginning at the end to see kind of how this moves backwards into it. Core value number five here at First Baptist New Orleans is this. To be a biblically thriving church, we must be father-glorifying. And to be father-glorifying, we must be humble. There must be humility. But look how it says it in the passage in verse 11. It says, to the glory and praise of God. When we get over to chapter 2, it's going to say, to the praise and glory of God the Father. I mean, over and over again, this is the ultimate end of things that Paul establishes over and over. That all of the, the work that we do, all of the relationship that we have, the love for one another, the love for God, the serving one another, making disciples of all nations, it's all ultimately to the glory of God the Father. That the Father is glorified in us as we are humble. And that's going to be seen throughout this passage. But I want you to see why this has to be a core value for us. 
Because if we are to be in line with God's word, we have to be a people that ultimately are doing everything we do to the glory of God the Father. What does that mean? That's churchy language, right? Glory of, to God the Father. Well, his glory is seen in his love. That's an aspect of his glory. So his love ought to be on, in, on display in you as you interact with your neighbors. His wisdom is an aspect of his glory. So when we look at God, we see love and we see wisdom. His wisdom ought to be on display in you so that he gets the glory. On and on I could go with the attributes of God that all culminate into his glory. And all of that glory is to be reflected in your life. You ought to be manifesting those aspects of who he is. But Paul gets specific going backwards. Core value number four, to be a biblically thriving church, we must be Christ-centered. Look where it says it. That comes through Jesus Christ. What comes through Jesus Christ? The filling of the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Notice how these kind of build in a sequential order. To be a biblically thriving church, we must be Christ-centered. And if I could implore us toward one thing, it's that we would proclaim Christ together. A tool that we use for that is the three circles as a church. It's it's just a simple way of putting forward the gospel. I love that even last night during the the pumpkin hunt that our student ministry did, I'm so thankful for Noah and Brittany Green and them leading that, but but kids had to come to my house as one of the the stops on their uh, scavenger hunt and literally with their bodies do the three circles. And they had to explain it to me. But, but while we make that fun and while we're trying to just drive that in, we are equipping our students so that they can be ambassadors for Christ in their schools and in their neighborhoods and in their relationships and with their lost family members. I mean, understand, we just want our children to know the gospel so well that they can share it. And that's why we do what we do. But core value number three, to be a biblically thriving church, we must be spirit-filled. So you see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are a Trinitarian church. To be a biblically thriving church, we must be spirit-filled, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. You say, well, Chad, it says righteousness, not filled with the Spirit. That's right. But how are we made right on a continual basis? How are we sanctified? It's by the work of His Holy Spirit. We see this manifest in all of Paul's writings He gives credit to the Holy Spirit and the Spirit's work within the body of believers. So if there's anything that I do right, I give glory to God the Father because I have a relationship through Jesus Christ. And his Spirit has filled me to give me a mind of wisdom at times to do his will. So God gets the glory. Anytime that something goes right, it's because of him, not because of me. And so we see this being moved through the passage, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes by Jesus Christ. And what has Jesus Christ given us? He has given him himself through the Holy Spirit. Core value number two, to be a biblically thriving church, we must be servant-led. Notice, keep going back, it says, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. Well, notice back at the beginning of this passage in verse 1, he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints, so it's speaking to everyone in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. In other words, he's saying, especially you guys, overseers and deacons, you better pay special attention to this because you're leading. And so we must have servant leaders 
as a church, pastors and deacons, you say, well, Chad, it says overseers. There's some words that are used interchangeably. Overseers, elders, bishops, pastors. We see these different translations of these words that all seem to be used synonymously. And so today in Baptist life, we use the word pastor. And I really prefer that because it reminds me of a responsibility I have to God's sheep. That it's not just about standing back and looking from a distance, an overseer. It's not just about being an elder, someone who has kind of a dignified wisdom about them. But it is about a role where I come in close and I'm with the people of God. A fellow sheep, but also called to be an under-shepherd, under the good shepherd. And it's good for us to have shepherds here, but also have deacons here that are serving who are, who are aiding the pastors in the work of ministry, caring for the needs of the church, all of these things. He is speaking to them. But brothers that are serving as deacons, brothers that are serving as pastors, and all the saints hear this. We need to be able to approve the things that are superior so that we may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. We are readying one another for something. We are readying one another for something. It's not just about going through the motions week after week. We are getting ready for something. And what is that? It is the day of the Lord. I mean, can you imagine a bride who doesn't think at all about her day of marriage, who doesn't think about any of the arrangements, who doesn't do any of the planning, and then suddenly realizes, she looks down at her watch, she's like, I feel like I had something today. She's like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm supposed to be getting married right now. Can you imagine? The, the chapel filled, everyone waiting, and like, where is she? I mean, is, did she not attend to the things that she should have been doing for this day? Should she not have been preparing herself to be a radiant bride, to be received by her groom? Brothers and sisters, we are preparing one another for a day that is likened to a wedding. That we are to be a radiant bride as the people of God, prepared for Christ who will receive us and care for us eternally and protect us and provide for us eternally, eternal life. We are preparing ourselves. And servant leaders, we should be leading out in service of this preparation. But then notice, it all comes back to this. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment. Core value number one for us as a church is to be a biblically thriving church, we must be scripture fed. How are we to grow in knowledge? Just to read more commentaries or we should all enroll at the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. I mean, like, is that how it is to be? Perhaps some of us are called to ministry leadership. And so going to a seminary for leadership training is important, for theological training is important. For every one of us, to all the saints, we are called to grow in knowledge. And I present to you the means that God has ordained for you to grow in that knowledge of who he is. It is his word. Pursue him in his word. Read the word. To keep on growing in knowledge in every kind of discernment. That is a discernment for moral actions. The specific word used here, it's only found once in the New Testament. And it is an idea toward a moral action. Discerning what I ought to do and what I shouldn't do. There's all kind of questions. I'm reading a book right now about the metaverse. 
Why? Because I don't understand what the metaverse is. I don't get it. But what I'm reading is suggesting that it's going to have a seismic impact on the world. It's going to have a huge impact on economies. It's going to have a huge impact on people's understanding of their identity. And so I want to understand it. I want to be able to discern what is a relationship, a Christian relationship with the metaverse. Because the Bible doesn't talk about the internet. The Bible doesn't talk about the metaverse or about goggles that you put on to experience an alternate reality. But we're to be a discerning people who understand the times, who don't just bury our heads in the sand, but then also are able to rightly apply the word of God to the things that come along, ever-changing, ever-new. We must be scripture-fed. And I pray this. Actually, I want to pray this. God, I pray that our love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that, God, we may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of in praise of your great name, God, our Father. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for this invitation, a humble invitation issued by a servant that calls us to identify as a servant of Christ Jesus. Thank you for the gratitude of this one who was himself in jail. Yet gratitude was just growing out of his heart. Because there was a humility. So, Lord, cultivate in us humility that produces this sort of gratitude to you for one another, for our brothers and sisters in other contexts, but also for your faithfulness, for your work in us that will be brought to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. And, Lord, thank you that it is your desire that we would be a biblically thriving church. But Lord, help us not to miss that it all begins in the ground of humility. And this prayer begins really in your word. But Lord, make us a people of your word. In every part of our lives, may your word be brought to bear. May your truth illuminate our path. God, make us a people more and more and more ready for the day of Christ Jesus. Because we know that that is what we are ultimately preparing one another for. I want to speak to those that I spoke to earlier that maybe were here and do not identify as a follower of Jesus Christ. This is a prayerful moment, but I just want to speak to you for a moment. That as you've considered this life that Paul is demonstrating, is manifesting, is putting forward as an example, a life of humility where he didn't identify himself as the CEO of the church, but as a servant. A man who, even in dire circumstances, was giving thanks, praising God for these people. A man who desperately wanted the church 
of Jesus Christ to be pure, to do what was right, to have discernment. I want to ask you, is that the life that you desire? A life of humility, a life of discernment, a life of beauty? Because that is the life that God invites you to. It's not an easy life. But it is a life where he who begins a work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. You say, well, how do I get that life? How do I come into this relationship with Jesus Christ? It's through faith. It's believing that what God did for you through Jesus Christ is all that's needed for you to be saved. It's believing that when God sent his one and only son to come and to live in this world and to die on a cross, that he died for you. He paid the consequence for your sin, was then buried and resurrected on the third day, ascended into heaven, and as we've just talked about, one day he will return. And if you'll just get honest with God right where you're sitting, right in this moment, and ask him to forgive you, and then to give your life to Jesus Christ, you become a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And then you begin to grow in the exact pattern described here, a life of humility. If that's you today, I want to lead you in a prayer that you could just speak to God. Maybe saying something like this from your heart. God, today I am seeing maybe for the first time that I am a person in need of your forgiveness. And so I'm believing that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for me. So God, please, will you take away my sin through what Jesus Christ did for me? God, I don't deserve your salvation, but I am trusting in this moment that this is the way, the only way that I can be saved. And so I give you my life. I want Jesus to be the king of my life from this day forward. I thank you. I thank you, God, that you are willing to save me through faith in Jesus Christ. Not because of my works, but only because of what Jesus has done for me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you prayed a prayer like that, and you meant it from your, your heart, I want you to come after the service and find me. I'll be in the foyer. And just, just start the conversation this way. I prayed that prayer today. And that helps me know exactly what you're talking about so that we can begin a relationship where I function as one of your pastors and begin the process of helping you to grow as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus Christ. And I want you to know, you will have a family in this room that is supporting you and walking with you, willing to enter into your messiness just as they hope you will enter into theirs. We're gonna sing a song of response in this moment and I'm gonna ask for everyone to stand for some of you today, God may have pierced your heart on a specific passage, a part of this, that you just need to come and kneel. I want us during these times of response to be able to come and just pray and get clean with God. So if you need to do that, don't be too proud to come and humble yourself at these steps today and spend time with your maker.